Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Andrew Davis. Andrew is an American process philosopher and theologian and the author of the recently released book, Metaphysics of Exolife, Toward a Constructive Whiteheadian Cosmotheology. You can get connected with Andrew and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today we have Andrew Davis with us, and uh, Andrew, besides being a friend of mine, uh, you are a process philosopher, theologian, and scholar of cosmological wonder. Uh, what a title uh, that is. But you're also the program director for the Center for Process Studies, uh, which I was uh, a part of the 50th anniversary uh, at the conference uh, just a few months ago uh, in Claremont, California. It was an incredible time. It's always fun to hang out and chat with you. Uh, but besides all of those incredible things, you're also the recent author of a book called Metaphysics of Ex- Exolife Toward a Constructive Whiteheadian Cosmotheology. Uh, Andrew Davis is an easy thing to pronounce uh, and an easy, easy, easy thing to say. Your book title, not so much. Uh, but how are you doing today, Andrew? I'm doing great, Mason. It's good to see you again, and uh, thanks for having me on. It's always um, great to, to great to chat with you. So yeah. I just mentioned a bunch of things that you do in the world, but uh, yeah. from your perspective, who is Andrew Davis to Andrew Davis? <laughs> good. That's a great way to start. Well, I mean, you hit on part of it. I like to consider myself as a theologian with deep philosophical roots, or alternatively, a philosopher with deep theological roots. But it wasn't always that way. So I was raised, perhaps like you and a lot of your listeners, in a very conservative evangelical household. I went to a Protestant evangelical high school, uh, which wasn't all bad. But, you know, retrospectively, we we see certain dimensions of our upbringing that were quite interesting. Right. Um, I like not being able to listen to Deftones and eventually getting into that later in life, right? Yes, Deftones, Godsmack. They didn't like the title Godsmack. That was, <laughs> whereas I can understand that. So, but that, that I emerge out of that world. You know, I remember Bible class being um, a class that I actually enjoyed partly because I had a, a teacher who would let questions stand. He would let, leave questions open rather than close. And I remember thinking, you know, that's, that's an exciting sort of thing. You know, I can walk into the mm-hmm. class and have a space of openness to ask questions as opposed to one where uh, answers are completely told to me. So, you know, that was a space of debate and openness. And I see it now as really early philosophical and theological seeds in me that would later blossom as I, you know, go into Point Loma, Claremont, uh, and beyond. So from an early interest all the way till now, it's been a a trajectory of probing at the universe, of of thinking Mm -hmm. metaphysically, that is about the nature of reality and trying to understand and ask questions about the nature and character of, of God in the world and how they relate. And to do so, without contradicting what I think my Christian tradition would allow, but in some sense, um, being in line with it. I think that's possible too. So it's been a wild journey. It's like T.S. Eliot says, you know, after all our exploring, we'll return to where we started 
and know that place again for the first time. Mm. So I, I sort of like that as a metaphor for a kind of journey that a lot of people take. And perhaps you yourself and some of your listeners can relate to that in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about the book. Uh, before we dive into the contents of the book, I want to hear a little bit more kind of uh, broad overview of like reflections on just the book writing process for this book. Uh, so was there anything that you learned like factually as you wrote the book? Maybe, you know, there's lots of theology, there's lots of philosophy, there's certainly even some history in this book. Uh, uh, so I would imagine in the process of researching for this book that something came up where you're like, wow, I had no idea about that before. What were some of those things that might have come up where you're like, that is surprising and I want to include that in the book? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, the book is an academic book. It's it's philosophical and theological in nature, which you know may turn some off, but, it, but it's also more than that too. Um, it's a part of, I'd say, an ongoing conversation, actually an exp- a conversation that now is exploding and really interesting mm. ways. And, and that's largely a conversation about how it is that theology uh, and philosophy are going to react in light of the potential of other inhabited worlds and pervasive uh, extraterrestrial life. Of course, the conversation now is exploding partly because there's new wind and whistleblowing going on surrounding mm-hmm. this UFO phenomenon, which is quite interesting. I don't go into that in this book, you know, but I think that's part of the new energy around it. But it's important, I think, for people to see historically that this is not at all a new question, right? So the ancient Greek atomists uh, affirmed infinite worlds and likely thought that these worlds were were populated. Um, Aristotle, not so much, right? Everything descends towards the center. And for him, it logically requires one world. Um, so there can't be other worlds that, that are having other sorts of life. But then later, the, the conversation explodes in terms, again, of this question of, well, perhaps... God is not limited with respect to what uh, God creates or God and the world create together. So it, it's been a, a long-standing conversation. Debates have flying all over the place. The implications for um, whether how we think about creation and incarnation and redemption. So internal to, to Christian faith, the question of extraterrestrials is uh, can be devastating. Of some, as some have argued, um, mm-hmm. or Christian faith arguably can ex- expand itself and and open these. Uh, questions more fruitfully. And so my book doesn't go too much into the history. It's more on the philosophical debate, but it's important for people to see that. One thing I've learned is it is very unwise to try to define life. Life Mm. is a very notoriously difficult thing to... Wait, I thought it just begins at conception. (laughs) Well, according to uh, my thinking, the antecedents of life, what what is pre-life extends all the way down in nature, right? This is sort of where Whitehead might help us, but but these are hard hard questions. But I find the current state of things adventurous, exploratory. Philosophers and theologians are writing new exo theologies or astro theologies or cosmo theologies to use these wild terms, and they're rooted in this endeavor to try to think about how it is religious and theological systems will respond um, mm. to the news that we are not alone, um, which mm. for all we know could come rather quickly. It's not at all. An absurd uh, question. So, mm-hmm. I mean, did Absolutely. you did you raise a question like that in your youth? Did did you ponder about extraterrestrials? You know, I definitely thought of you know what what if there is more? I was I've always been really interested in the paranormal. I was always really into like ghost hunting shows, and obviously alongside of that was a lot of the UFO alien kind of shows. You know, yeah. I, I grew up watching all sorts of things about like Area Fifty One, all those sorts of things, and uh, yeah, part of it was like this. What what would my faith be like if we knew that there was more to this world beyond, uh, you know, just the the 
what we have observed uh, in yeah. in uh, biological life here on Earth. Um, but what if there is more to it than uh, just that? What what if there's life elsewhere? And uh, yeah. what does that mean for my faith? And even when I was 11, 12, 13 years old, those were some of the questions I was considering. And you know, certainly I would imagine that I probably think about it much differently now because I also wasn't like into Whiteheadian metaphysics at that time in my life. Uh, but, uh, and so that has shaped the way I think about these things now a little bit more, but, uh, yeah, those are yeah. at least were questions that were coming up, uh, even when I was a kid. And it was a lot, a lot of that was due to the fact that I was really interested in paranormal activity. You know, I, I like that. And I think we take for granted nowadays because of our free theological speculation, which is welcomed most, most of the time, depending on your circles. But in 1600, Bruno, Giordano Bruno, was burnt mm -hmm. at the stake in Oxford Square, you know, for a variety of reasons. Scholars debate that, but one of which was this notion that an infinite God would do nothing less than create infinite worlds, mm -hmm. uh, an infinite populated worlds, right? Infinite worlds of life, intelligence, and mind. Mm -hmm. You know, so <clears throat> that is a, it, it, back then could be quite a dangerous affirmation. But nowadays, it's not just purely a theological speculation, but one that has cosmological and scientific uh backing behind it as well you know so mm. at the popular level SETI the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is an organization that's been around for a long time sending signals out and listening right we've all seen the movie contact perhaps you know and and <clears throat> asking about <clears throat> the possibility of what happened here uh happening elsewhere and there's no seems to be no reason why that shouldn't be the case on an evolutionary scheme there's nothing that restricts possibilities from being actualized only once on one planet and but the theological dimension is quite quite different. I think most scientists are not so interested in that. But I think <clears throat> we're seeing increasingly, and over the last twenty years, a variety of different texts that are taking different theological and philosophical angles uh, precisely on this on this question. So it's an mm -hmm. exciting it's an exciting time. Yeah. While you were writing the book, was there anything that came up where you're like, wow, I did not know about that about myself before? Was there anything kind of like in terms of like internal reflection uh, for yourself that came up while writing the book? And obviously you've written yeah. other books before, but was there anything in this particular book writing process where, you know, something come up that came up within you that uh, you learned something new about yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I'd say a number of things. The thing that jumps out first, though, is a sense of a deeper sense of belonging to the universe. And that sounds perhaps trite, but it's not, right? So we hear a lot of talk about the meaning crisis and different dimensions of the meaning crisis. I think the sense of belonging in the universe is an extremely important uh, conviction. So mm -hmm. just as a little backdrop, you know, the book is, is a constructive critique of NASA's former chief historian, a friend of mine, his name is Stephen J. Dick. You know, and he develops six principles of what he calls naturalistic cosmotheology. And this is essentially his proposal about how it is that theology and religion need to change in light of uh, vast pluralities of worlds. And his first principle is that human beings are in no way physically central to the universe, right? So we, you'll remember Nicholas Copernicus, the great mathematician, the polymath, mm -hmm. who is essentially responsible for in, in no small way, for this shift towards a heliocentric system, right? We move from a geocentric system where the Earth is the center um, and, and everything is revolving around us, is a deeply anthropocentric rendering, mm -hmm. to one that casts us onto the periphery, right? It's this cosmological decentering, if you want. So there's a certain truth and a fact that we are in no way physically central to the universe. And yet, I think this claim about belonging goes much deeper than that. It's as if significance or value is only a matter of size and position but that 
you know, we don't really take that into our modern understanding. It's it, when it comes to ethics or, or whatnot, it's like size and position is only one aspect, but that doesn't designate value. So I think when I say belong on Whitehead scheme, human beings are an expression rather than an exception to everything that's going on in nature. So there's a wonderful way of thinking that despite our cosmological decentering, Whitehead allows us to be metaphysically recentered. And the reason he does that is because human beings are as fully natural as everything else. Our experience, the fact of mind, uh, this element of value that seems to persistently bug us. And so he, he asks us to essentially uh, navigate downward from our experience to see what the reality at its most fundamental level would be like. And so human beings are recentered in the sense that our experience is the only place we can start to think philosophically and arguably theologically about our standing in the universe. So th that's one thing. I mean, there's others, but, you know, we have a sense of being cosmologically infantile and we are, but that's not the full story. Um, it's not the full story with respect to other terrestrial species or extraterrestrial species that might think they're at the center only to learn they're not. Right. But right. we all exist in some way. And there's something that binds us inexorably to this universe. And I think that's a, a wonderful sense of, of belonging. We're being and longing come together. Right. That's what belonging is. It, it reminds me of the the sense that, you know, obviously the universe is, is so expansive. And if, you know, we and it's especially physicists are studying the expansion of the universe and uh, and how vast uh, it is. And, you know, astronomers and and other people are, you know, people that in, engage and study the vastness of the universe yeah. and at the same time like we hear you know we see in quantum physics when you actually go down uh that when you go down into atoms and particles and electrons now all of a sudden you realize oh that's a universe in and of itself as well and mm -hmm. so there's this vastness of the universe when you kind of look out but also when you look inward there's also this entire universe as well and so it's sort of yeah. what reminds me of like when we think about um ourselves within all of this obviously we are very infantile uh in the sense that you know the universe is far greater than we what we can imagine but also there's a universe within each and every one of us as well uh there's a whole Absolutely. world there's a whole life obviously happening and so uh there's vastness outside of us and there's vastness within us that's beautiful and absolutely i mean we've learned that definitively and it, it is a, an amazing thought what we are uh, the universe is to us as we are and perhaps to elemental dimensions within within us right right um in fact that reminds me of a famous analogy that's been put forth you know by charles hartshorn in the process tradition philip clayton with respect to this notion of panentheism that that god in sense is the mind of the universe uh and the universe is god's body mm -hmm. in the similar way that our mind is that element that transcends our body and yet our body is intimately related to who we are you know mm -hmm. it's, it's this mutual sort of vastness that is imminent and participatory and not uh, exclusive in a deep way um, but I wanted to pick up on something you said just about what physics is discovering and doing. Absolutely, we're studying cosmologically, right, the expanse of the universe and its macroscopic uh, structures. But quantum physics going all the way down to the microscopic. And what we find there is matter has dissolved, you know, into something far more fluid, into energy. And what is energy? Well, we don't quite know, but Whitehead would leverage that even internal to energy, what we find is events that are occurring. And they're not nothing, right? They're experiential, he argues. I would even argue, and he, I think he says this, that they have an element of life to them. Mm. They have an element of value to them. 
you know, obviously it's not experience value in life. As we understand it, we're very highly evolved uh, achievements of those antecedent dimensions that are arguably never wholly absent from nature. In part, I think we have to argue that, and this is not, I think, insignificant for extraterrestrials because we're living, experiencing, valuing beings. And if you do think, as for the modern perspective was, that the world is purely dead matter, and that's what we've emerged from, there seems to be a huge gap there. How does something living, experiencing, valuing emerge from something vacuous, purposeless, and dead? Mm. So what I love about Whitehead and process thinking in general, they offer a living ontology that is just the nature of being, the nature of existence itself is processual, it's active and alive. It's only in this context in which it, in which we can make sense of our emergence on this planet, but by extension to the elements of our uh, existence and experience also taking place elsewhere. There are certain metaphysical convictions that, in principle, apply across the universe, right? And I, I just think that life, value, and experience are, are part of those things. And if that's the case, then, well, we might agree with Bruno that there are potentially infinite populated worlds with creatures that, however physically different, cosmologically different, they'll nevertheless share something of the dimensions of who we are because we mm -hmm. all belong to this same universe mm -hmm. i mean that gets lofty but but that's significant i think right the depths mm -hmm. of matter are not dead they're alive mm -hmm. hmm. you we've already uh kind of name dropped this guy named whitehead a few times and so for the average person who has probably never heard of whitehead and yeah. certainly has not even studied metaphysics or anything like that how would you describe whiteheadian metaphysics to somebody who is completely unaware of any of that yeah that's a that's a great question <laughs> So white-headed metaphysics, otherwise known as process philosophy, I think can be reduced down in, in a more simplistic way to just <clears throat> the affirmation that becoming, this element of process of becoming is more fundamental than stasis and being. So now remember, that's a metaphysical conclusion. It's a, it's a perspective about the nature of reality. So if you go back, for example, to the origins of philosophy in Greece, you have Heraclitus, who insisted that you cannot step in the same river twice, all things flow, right? This element of change and becoming for him was one of the most fundamental convictions. And his antagonist, Parmenides, who said that change is just an illusion. What we have is static permanence. And so this change in, this change in permanence thread runs all the way back. And philosophy took the direction largely that what was fundamental was immobile, atomistic, and unchanging. Mm. Whereas this other tradition of flow and becoming was always there and, and developed alongside it, but was muffled, I think, when it comes to dominant uh, dominant developments. So Whiteheadian tradition is in this line of Heraclitus, where becoming and change activity is the base of reality rather than stasis. And we remember theologically, too, I think this is significant, that theology has taken on or at least adapted philosophical perspectives throughout its duration. So Augustine used Plato to a Neoplatonic thought to express his thinking. Aquinas, the great uh, mind of Catholic theology, used Aristotle uh, and his metaphysics. Mm -hmm. So today, process thinkers, process theologians are utilizing Whitehead in an analogous kind of way. We're saying that here's a metaphysics of becoming activity and change, of relationship, of interdependence that is fruitful when, when uh, utilized to express the deepest convictions of faith. So, I mean, that's a, sort of a brief overview, but it's this notion that the world is verb-like fundamentally rather than noun-like. Mm. And then it rethinks how that changes our perspectives all the way up 
and all the way down in nature and all the way up to the level of divinity of, of an affirmation yeah. of God. And on the flip side, as you mentioned, like there has been the dominant stream of stasis or permanence uh, in both philosophy and theology. And I yeah. think a lot of people uh, who listen to this podcast probably have encountered things like God being unchanging, God being immovable, God being um, all powerful, uh, God being yeah. immutable. And so there's this uh, st stasis and permanence even to God. And again, as you're mentioning here with Whiteheadian metaphysics, uh, not only is the world and everything in it uh, changing and in flux uh, and in process uh, and verb-like, but also that God is like that too. And yeah. so uh, it, it's very, it's very, very different of a way of understanding not only the world, but also God in comparison to probably the way that we understood the world and God, especially for those of us who grew up in like very conservative Christianity. Sure. Oh, absolutely. But it's somewhat, somewhat odd, isn't it? That these convictions of unchangingness and um, immutability to use the philosophical term, got in, entrenched in the tradition <clears throat> process thinkers i think generally want to say there's an element of god where that is applicable the persistence of divine love the persistence of divine being divine existence but divine experience is always changing divine experience is in every way related to the world in each becoming uh, moment and that's something that i think the tradition philosophically could not say and yet when you look at the biblical narratives when you look at uh, experiences of mystics and spiritualists and different believers throughout the uh, throughout history, it's of an active presence that's mm -hmm. ongoing, that's related. You know, so it, it is somewhat odd that we allege ourselves to these unchanging metaphysical principles, which which forces us in some way to dismiss a lot of our experience when it comes to our experience of the world, our experience of God. So, in brief, God is not the contradiction to the world. God and the world are coherently reflective of each other and the, tr the tradition really could have worked this out by saying that general revelation really is a revelation of something in the nature and life of god um you know because that's the claim that reason and experience in some way reflect what we can know uh, about the mm -hmm. reality of god mm -hmm. so I, I think we could could have taken that to mean that god is in process god is dynamically involved in an adventurous co-creative relationship with the world none of that's heretical i can read it directly into genesis you know right but again we get we get quite entrenched in certain ways of thinking um mm -hmm. rather than ways of experiencing and then leveraging thought from them so it's a mm -hmm. tedious distinction i think yeah i mean even the christian tradition says that uh to know god is to know a person that person being jesus christ and so uh if if you want to know who god is then at least to some degree you're going to have to know a person a human beautiful beautiful and this notion that the uh yeah, I like that, that the word became flesh. There's a becoming, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's not a pure, uh, God is completely and utterly unchanging, like Aristotle would say, for example. Aristotle is not a Christian, but Christians utilized his thought, certainly. It, it's hard to say that God would become, right? Or, or, or that in becoming, nothing changed for God, right? So mm -hmm. well, the experience of Christ as this revelation of God, as Christian faith insists, impacts one would think the reality of god as well right that god is different pre and post incarnation right and technically the tradition wouldn't allow that to be to be said but i think that's something that you know process thinkers can can navigate in a way that's not <clears throat> that's not disingenuous i think it's quite insightful 
I want to invite you to the Q Christian Fellowship Conference on January 11th through the 14th, 2024 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Are you LGBTQ and Christian, or are you an ally of the LGBTQ community and looking to learn how to better uplift the lives of LGBTQ individuals in faith-based spaces? This conference is an annual gathering where LGBTQ Christians, parents, and allies gather for worship, fellowship, workshops, and keynote speakers, making lifelong friendships, experiencing healing, transformation, and hope, and witnessing the fullness of God's love and affirmation through each other. This year's speakers include Miles Markham, Bishop Joseph William Tolton, Kathy Baldock, Britt Barron, and special guests Flamey Grant, Matthias Roberts, and many more presenters who are deeply committed to this work, including this podcast, A People's Theology, which will record a live episode that you can attend. Register today at qcfconf.org with the code APEOPLESTHEOLOGY, all caps, no spaces, for a 10% discount off your conference registration. Q Christian Fellowship, cultivating radical belonging for LGBTQ Christians and allies through a commitment to growth, community, and relational justice. I hope to see you there. One of the words that we've been throwing around quite a bit already is metaphysics. And at the beginning of the book, you differentiate metaphysics from cosmology. And that seems to be a really important distinction as you explore uh, your thesis throughout this book. Can you talk a little bit about that distinction between cosmology and metaphysics? Uh, I think it's a really, really important one. And sometimes it seems like people kind of use them interchangeably, but clearly there is a difference between the two. Yes. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) There, it is a tedious difference, right? And um, I make the distinction principally because I'm critiquing Stephen J. Dick's work, which I think only has a cosmological orientation without going to what I'd argue is a deeper metaphysical orientation. So mm. <clears throat> metaphysics, you know, is not that odd section of your independent bookstore. <laughs> I mean, it, it is that, but, it, but <laughs> philosophically speaking, metaphysics is not that. I've always argued, you know, when you see a, a metaphysics store or whatever, you know, it's got lots of crystals and rocks and all those sorts of things. And I'm like, right. where's the whitehead in this metaphysics store? Right, right. Yeah, I found that I have to bring I have to make that distinction up a lot. I mean, so as interesting as that section of your bookstore is, that's not philosophically what the discipline of metaphysics has involved. Um, so so metaphysics is this question about what are the fundamental what's the fundamental nature character and constituents of reality of being itself of of what it is that uh, is everywhere and always the case in a necessary way that means it cannot not be so that it's a distinction of necessity versus contingency contingency means things could be different right for example our laws of nature uh our planet um every all these different dimensions of cosmology could have been different the development of stars solar systems there's no necessity in each of these things and how they developed, arguably. But metaphysically, they all express a, the same nature and character in their contingency. I know that's sort of a, a tedious, tedious distinction, but metaphysics arguably is the deepest layer of reality that is always expressed in, in whatever cosmology there is. So Whitehead, as an example, thought there could be many different cosmic epochs, he called them, where laws and the character of things could be quite different. But metaphysics, arguably, is always going to be applicable to the difference of those different cosmologies, right? Mm-hmm. So one is one of necessity and 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 permanence versus contingency and change. I think cosmology has to do with with what happens to be the case as we experience it and finagling ideas about 
our, our current cosmos, whereas metaphysics applies to any and all cosmoi, if you want, mm. <laughs> plural of cosmos, right? So in, in a way, it's kind of the way that like physicists would talk about laws of nature, right? Where laws of nature, you know, we, we see uh, elements uh, and these elements interact with one another and then they develop uh, you know, lots of different things. And then eventually you get to biological life. And, but all of that uh, is rooted in what we like, what physicists would call laws of nature. And mm -hmm. so it sounds like metaphysics to a certain degree is similar like that, where uh, metaphysics is kind of like, this is how it is based on the way that reality is structured. Yeah, I think that that's one way to approach it. You know, and there's a fun debate about <clears throat> whether laws of nature are unchanging or not. Mm. Um, you know, if they're eternal and necessary in nature, then yes, they're a part in some sense of this metaphysical soil that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we might speak about that too quickly. I think a lot of laws and characteristics develop as habitual, they're habits, as uh, Rupert Sheldrake has long argued. But Whitehead argued the same thing that mm -hmm. the development in ourselves to be, um, is more habitual developmental character uh, with a dominant pattern, right? Mm -hmm. um, but still, that would that would presuppose or assume possibilities, infinite possibilities, potentially values. These are the kind of things that belong in the question of metaphysics, the things you can't get away from, even if you want to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so along the lines of this distinction between cosmology and metaphysics. So, uh, you know, again, we're, we're talking a little bit about cosmology. You then attempt in this book to construct a cosmo theology, as you call it. Uh, what is cosmo theology and how does it differ from other theologies? Yeah, great. So I'll give uh, Stephen J. Dick's definition in this book, which I think is limited, but okay. He, he just defines cosmo theology as that theology that takes into account all that we know of contemporary and current science, including, and this is especially important for him, the hypothesis that the universe is, could be a biological universe. That is one where life is pervasive and, and common. So mm -hmm. it's a theology that is oriented cosmically. You know, and in part, this has always been a part of the tradition, but when it comes to a lot of the new things we're learning about cosmology and physics, et cetera, um, it, it becomes a new way of expressing a certain orientation, uh, a cosmic orientation to theology, including this question of alien, of alien life. And so it strikes me then that, again, like kind of going back to this question of metaphysics and how it shapes cosmology, mm. because you're developing this cosmo theology out of Whiteheadian metaphysics and part of Whiteheadian metaphysics, uh, again, the, the the sort of nature of reality is based in relationship. Uh, and that's sort of the argument that Whitehead would make. So then that essentially means that the cosmo theology that you're developing really at its root will it have this relational metaphysics that runs throughout the entire cosmo theology, uh, yeah. which then means that relationship is going to shape the, the structure of the universe even beyond uh, biological uh, life, and certainly on Earth. Uh, yeah. And so we would likely see that relationship happen uh, even at very complex levels beyond uh, Earth. And so uh, it yeah. so it doesn't seem like it's all that far of a stretch then that we would see maybe other biological life elsewhere on the, in the universe if relationship is fundamental to the nature of reality. Yeah, absolutely. And it may not be biological life, might, might be other styles of life. Um, but yeah, I think this element of relationship is one that modern theology has taken on 
um, in a very significant sense. Um, and partly because physics has shown, not, not that science just determines what theology does, it's not necessarily the case, but physics has shown how utterly entangled and participatory this universe is. And again, if that's the case, when we leverage that imaginably in the direction of God, will God be the great contradiction to that? Or the great exemplification, great expression of that? And so I love this notion of relationality. In my previous book, um, Mind, Value, and Cosmos, I argue that relationality is what is ultimate, right? There is no state where you can untangle things such that you can say what is ultimate and what's not. Mm. Now, when it comes to cosmo theology, I do argue um, with Whitehead that God and a cosmos require each other. And that's not a absurd sort of thing. I mean, imagine uh, a saying that there can be teacher, there could be a teacher with no students or a parent without a child. Um, I think similarly, we can say that there is no such thing as God without a world, right? The part of what it means to be God is to have a world. Part of what it means to be a world is to uh, assume or have a domain of ultimacy that is expressed in the language of language mm -hmm. of God. So it's a reciprocal understanding of God in the world. And one of the things I push back with, with Stephen J. Dick, is he has, makes the perfectly plausible notion that there could be very highly evolved superintelligences, um, who we might say have the attributes that are sometimes given to a traditional, or most of the time given to traditional renderings of God, omnipotence, omniscience, etc. He even goes so far as to imagine that a superintelligence, which is a product of evolution, could have fine-tuned the cosmological constants, thereby making our existence uh, possible. So it's quite interesting, but my 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 that doesn't quite get to the metaphysical condition, conditions below that superintelligence either. Because it would seem that if this intelligence is a product of cosmological evolution, then itself is also a product of that tuning, right? It can't have mm -hmm. tuned these things and then also been a product of them. So there's a, there's a tension there. So the, the question of causal theology pushes beyond that, right? What are the conditions of possibility for a universe at all? And historically, not just Whitehead, the tradition has said possibilities are domains of divine mentality and that we express them in, in, in deep ways. So the superintelligence doesn't yet answer why itself is possible, right? So we're pushed back to this level of thinking about what is fundamental when it comes to possibility. So, I mean, those are, those are lofty ideas, but the element of relationship, the element of metaphysics and cosmology being related and the distinction not being obvious between them, there's mm -hmm. no dogmatism here. It's always tentative. Uh, but it is adventurous discussion that I'm now uh, injecting process thinking into um, in ways that it hasn't hasn't recently. So, well, and I think process certainly has a lot to offer uh, th this conversation. And so, let, we we've already kind of been building up to this, uh, and, and we've already yeah. started just briefly touching on this. But clearly, you're laying out this like cosmological and certainly metaphysical foundation and groundwork for kind of this possibility of extraterrestrial life. And mm -hmm. so can you talk a little bit about how extraterrestrial life fits into all of this and certainly within a cosmo theology? Yeah. So before I jump into that, with you made a nice comment about process thought there. So the book has a, a more narrow and a more broad element to it. More narrowly, it's this constructive critique of Stephen Jick's uh, naturalistic cosmo theology. I moved through systematic steps to to push his theology deeper. I like it quite a bit. I affirm the principles he puts forth, but I think they can be inverted and stated metaphysically in ways that don't require what is ultimately for him the negation of a divine reality. Mm. That's the narrow focus. Much more broadly is an important fact that 
has not yet been documented. So this is the first place that it is documented is that process thinkers, Whitehead himself have not been silent on this question of extraterrestrial life. So the, mm. the, the appendix to the book, there's an A and a B. The first is a, is a history, selective history of process theology and extraterrestrial life. And what I do there is just look at some of the many statements that key process philosophers and thinkers, uh, theologians have made about this topic. And there's quite a few. It's, it's really quite fascinating. And then the second appendix B is a republication of an early article that a process thinker by the name of Lewis Ford wrote. And the title of that one is Theological Reflections on Extraterrestrial Life. 1968, he wrote it, I wow. assume, just prior to the moon landing, right? So a timely, timely article, which I argue is the first sustained treatment of the topic from the perspective of process theology, although he doesn't quite name Whitehead. Uh, but he doesn't need to. It's, it's all it's all there, certainly. That's all to say that process thought has been a part of this discussion that hasn't been adequately known um, until now. And that we need to continue to leverage and think about this question as a uh, think of a people's theology, this wonderful name of your podcast. This is the people's question about other worlds and extraterrestrial life. It's a cultural question. It's very much on the minds of a lot of people. And it has been throughout history. I mean, the, the amount of evidence that we've seen of cultures uh, for thousands of years asking this question is really remarkable. Yeah, it, it really is. It really is. And so, you know, I think there's various theological moves you can make to justify or affirm extraterrestrial life. One of which, you know, you could do this within process thought, but one of which the tradition has done is this notion of the logic of divine goodness. Assuming God is infinitely uh, good. The tradition said that God necessarily self-expresses divine goodness. And what that seems to, to necessitate <laughs> is plenitude. This fancy word meaning an utter plurality, an utter multiplicity. And again, if we look at our experience, I think we see that on this planet in the wild diversity of life. Um, not just human life, but, you know, sea life, other biological forms of life. And so it's, it's only natural to think about whatever the conditions metaphysically are that allow this diversity to come about as prompted by God. This is what process thinkers think, that there is a lure towards higher intensity, higher achievement of those things which are primitive, primitive life, primitive mind, primitive value. Evolution is nothing other than the complex rising of those elements that are ontologically primitive. Mm. And so those elements are what help construct planets. At higher levels, those elements are what bring life out of planetary environments. And the notion that that would not happen elsewhere or is not happening elsewhere um, has no grounds uh, metaphysically. You know, so I, again, I'm not being dogmatic saying process metaphysics must be the only way to look at this. It's one way, but it's one way that I think has fruitful extensions theologically and philosophically with respect to the fact that we're not alone in the universe. Mm. So along those lines then of maybe not being alone in the universe, when you talk about extraterrestrial life throughout this book, what do you mean by it? Like, obviously, there's this very scientific or a science fiction depiction of like, you know, green humanoid looking creatures. And yeah. uh, I'm guessing that really, truly is not the depiction or the at least the idea that most people who are in this very scholarly discussion about extraterrestrial life are ha like th that's not the depiction that they have of this extraterrestrial life. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about what when, when you think about or when you talk about extraterrestrial life, what, what are some of the maybe ideas that you have, what it could look like, what it's like? Uh, I'm, I'm really curious about some of that. 
Yeah, great. So, I mean, I think the literature has shown that the way in which extraterrestrial life could look could be, well, and, and there's a difference between extraterrestrial life and intelligent extraterrestrial life too. Mm. I think what people are really quite interested in is the intelligent extraterrestrial life, right? If you think about the UFO phenomenon, assuming a civilization can send inhabitants our way, these are, in, these are intelligent. You know, they're not just microbes, even though microbes are, it would be interesting to see an independent source of life elsewhere. We're more interested in this question of uh, intelligent extraterrestrial life. I think the current conversation is. So, but I think when we're thinking about physically what it could look like, utter diversity. There's no way uh, I would think to map what extraterrestrials would would or must look like. Um, and, you know, a lot of the fantasy literature, science, fi uh, uh, science fiction literature is interesting. Little green men, et cetera. And who knows? Who knows? Um, but I don't think there's any way we can map what they must look like. We see uh, quite diverse... <laughs> forms of intelligence on our planet alone, uh, not least, you know, octopus and et cetera, which are highly intelligent beings, mm -hmm. uh, but they in no way uh, look or sound or communicate like us. So I think the question is not a physical question. The question of extraterrestrial life is what is it that is common to all life and being in the universe? What is it to be alive? And so I think when we're wondering about what these beings or experiences experiencing uh, creatures are like, we're looking for that element of a thread of continuity between us. What is common, right? Extraterrestrial commonality, mm -hmm. which is actually quite an interesting discussion. So I think we're wondering philosophically about whether mind is pervasive, right? Uh, is mind a part of evolution? For process thinkers, it absolutely is. Everything has a mental domain to it. It gets complicated. A rock doesn't have a uh, a unified mind, but its fundamental constituents have elements of experience about them. So will extraterrestrials have minds like us? Well, if we share metaphysical principles that have mind within them, then yes, we have to say we, they do share a cognitive, uh, an experiential faculty. And what is it that uh, that experience and a fa experiential faculty allows? The navigation of possibility and the navigation of possibility in terms of values. So one would assume that if we do encounter highly intelligent beings that are alive, they would also be experiencing. And that experience, their experience would also have to do with, with values, right? So we might see uh, certain moral structures develop. We might see an interest in art uh, and music, right? Which is interesting, an interest in mathematics, right? You might remember in Contact, if you've seen it, this famous movie of extraterrestrial contact, um, where... What is sent out is a mathematical equation in some sense, a constellation of mathematical pattern to other galaxies uh, that is then recognized and seen, right? So you, you want to think about extraterrestrial life as that which is able to recognize in some sense what you are able to recognize when it comes to things that can't be removed from the universe, objective mathematical truths potentially. Mm -hmm. The harmony is shown in pattern, in music, in art, in morality, right? Morality is a form of human harmony. Uh, tuning our lives like we tune a, a liar or something. So I think extraterrestrial life um, physically is utterly diverse. Um, but metaphysically, there has to be commonalities between us and them. And it's an mm -hmm. open debate about what they are for Whiteheadians. For me, they'll be experiential beings. They'll have minds. They'll be concerned with uh, a value in, in a deep sense. And their life will be some, that which encompasses both those things. I don't think you can have life without experience, without value.
these mm -hmm. are tangled together to get us back to that relational relational thing. So does that help a little bit? I mean, I have no absolute hard answers to these questions. Naturally, we're speculating. But it also would be really interesting to know the way in which they relate to divinity. Uh, you know, th there are many, many different religions. There's many different ways uh, that human life has related to divinity. And I would imagine that other forms of life uh, in, in the world on, on earth uh, relate to divinity in certain ways. But it would be really interesting to see how, you know, certain different environments uh, in other parts of the universe yeah. would shape the experiences of life uh, in, in such a way where maybe they relate to divinity in very similar similar ways as we do, maybe even very different ways. Um, but that 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 yeah. question of their relationship with divinity is also really interesting to me. And sure. certainly, there's no definitive way of us to know exactly. But uh, it would be really really curious to know that particular yeah. part of extraterrestrial life. Oh, it's a totally natural question, a great question. And even if we reserve ourselves to our own terrestrial Earth, this is a question we posed before we ventured out geographically discovering other peoples on the other side of the planet you know we we wondered were they there turns out they were turns out they had a different cultural uh expression and means of encountering what they would consider as as sacred so mm -hmm. i want to allow for complete diversity based on extraterrestrial cultures the development of bodies and traditions etc technology civilization all that can be utterly diverse and their encounter with with God can can allow for that diversity, but even on our planet, we see deep strands of um, connection between religious traditions too. Doesn't mean they're saying all they're all saying the same thing. They're certainly not, but there are dimensions to religious traditions that are shared. Uh, each of them, if you want, expresses the character of God in different ways. Right when it comes to these primordial values that are arguably there, that are arguably a part of any affirmation of God, we see those expressed and enacted in different ways when it comes to different traditions. So I would expect there to be diversity religiously, diversity philosophically. They're going to know things, I would think, that we have not ever conceived because of their, the differences of their evolution and their culture. But I think they'll share things, deep value structures. They might share an affirmation that there must be mind if there is value and there is possibility in the nature of things. And But their encounter with God, a, a God approaching them, I think, is going to be contingent upon how they've developed what what they're able to receive and so in that sense is contingent you know so it, it is tough it is tough we don't know but i think there are certain things that will be shared between us and should we be able to make contact in some way how we do that and where our commonalities lie is a hard question mm -hmm. whether or not they have affirmed something like god or they label it that um is is possible or it's not, right? Think of uh, Avatar, right? Have you, did you see Avatar? Uh, I've seen like bits and pieces of it, but I, yeah. I, I haven't, I'm not like totally into the, the whole lore or the, the whole franchise of it uh, as some people are. Yeah, no, fair, fair enough. It's both films are good, first and second, just because how they creatively and imaginally conceive this interconnection we're talking about, the connection to divinity, the connection to the earth. So, and again, the fact that they've emerged at all at least from in terms of process theology is is because of the stimulus of divinity to be more than we can be more more than we are currently there's something in the nature of things that counters entropy that defeats entropy so can we so we can transcend into new dimensions of being uh, which i would consider higher dimensions of, of experience or consciousness life mm -hmm. uh, and value 
And there may be beings far, far exceeding us in, in those domains. I would potentially expect there are. There's nothing absurd about that. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. But at the end of the day, again, if if we think that these metaphysical uh, principles are the, the fundamental structure of the universe, then that sort of relationality is is going to remain a common through line regardless of what these beings are like and uh, where they live and how they live and all of that. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, like if we think that relationship is a fundamental metaphysical principle in, in the world and the universe, then certainly that these beings are going to want to relate in the same way that we're relating. So it, yeah. what's really interesting to think about is not only are we have we for thousands of years been thinking about this question of extraterrestrial life and have been searching for, for quite some time as well. But I would imagine that these, this extra, the the extraterrestrial life is probably doing the same. Like they probably are uh, on the search uh, and and have been wondering, is there, is there, uh, you know, other extraterrestrial life out there? And they're probably thinking of us. Uh, And so, uh, but all all of that comes down to the fact that again, relationality is a fundamental uh, structure to the universe. It's a fundamental principle to the universe. And therefore that, that relationality that is, uh, that that is moving us to search for extraterrestrial life and want to relate to extraterrestrial life is going to be the same for, for them as well. I would think so. And even for you to say that they, even if they wonder from their own planetary habitat as to whether there is other planets like theirs, that already assumes a deep connection between us, this mm-hmm. element of wonder. You know, and the tradition would tell you that philosophy, theology begins in wonder in a deep sense, wonder about the universe, wonder about the nature and character of things. Whitehead has a great statement in his book, Modes of Thought, which is which is far more readable than a lot of his texts. If, if any of your listeners are you know, interested in reading Whitehead, modes of thought is a good place to start. But near the end, he says, philosophy begins in wonder. And in the end, when philosophic thought has done its best, the wonder remains. <laughs> right. So, uh, and I love that because it's just an openness to that the sort of openness that I discerned in my early biblical classroom as a kid, right? It's like, wow, this is actually, it's cool that it's open and not closed. We have to see God as open and not closed. We have to see the universe as open and not closed, allowing for novelty, but allowing for deep, as as you say, connection and relationality. And if beings are out there, if we're wondering about beings um, out there, what we're wondering is if they're wondering back, right? 
And could there be in our lifetime a connection between them? Who knows? It seems so implausible for many, many reasons. But but who's to say? Imagine being alive when contact was made, when we know definitively that there's that we are not alone. You know, and some people mm-hmm. just assume that's the case now. They've had various experiences which are helping them say that. I haven't had those things. I don't think the evidence is definitive as of yet, but the conversation is still flowing here. So it's mm-hmm. not the last word uttered on that. Do you explore much in the kind of scientific development of trying to make this contact happen? Uh, do you explore that much uh, either maybe in the research of the book or the book itself around? Yeah. Like what are the developments that are happening in terms yeah. of trying to create this contact? What are some of the pieces of evidence that we may have that um, seems to suggest that there yeah. is something else out there? Uh, did, how, how much exploration have you done um, regards to that? Yeah. So so I don't go into that in this book, again, because it's more, again, more narrowly focused on philosophical critique of Stephen Dick's work. But certainly that's been a part of my of my research. So I mentioned SETI, uh, the search mm-hmm. for extraterrestrial intelligence earlier. And SETI has often been said to be have more of a passive approach. And what they mean by that is SETI is really concerned with listening, right? Listening to the universe, seeing if we can hear or discern signs that are coming our way that could be discerned as intelligent um, in some way. So, so that's one approach, the passive approach. Others have focused on what's called the active active approach. And, and in addition to SETI, there's another uh, group called METI, M-E-T-I, which stands for Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Um, their base is in, in San Francisco, just near where I am. And um, so this active approach is them sending messages out into space to see if they might be intercepted by an intelligent kind of species. So, I mean, there's the active and passive approach, which I think there's arguments for and against each. Um, For example, Stephen Hawking said, we probably shouldn't be sending messages out there, you know, because we're giving a signal, hey, here we are. And, you know, what if they're not uh, good beings out there and they want to come destroy us? Well, that might be more of a projection of our own barbaric ideas onto the cosmos. I think we have to be careful about that. And others saying we, we should do that. It's part of our our birthright as wandering beings to make connection. So active and passive. Now, in recent literature, too, what's the name of the book? There's a book called Extraterrestrial. That's the, that's the only name. It's by a Harvard um, scientist. I'm forgetting his name at the moment. But he, and he's got a lot of flack for this, but he's argued that only a few years ago, we saw the first uh, extraterrestrial piece of technology come into our near to our planet and it was called Amuamua, a hawaiian term meaning meaning something i I forget so i mean there are people who believe we've already encountered extraterrestrial technology well he's you know a lot of scientists disagree with him but he'll argue his point quite forcefully he's quite interesting he's worth looking into and you know so these are there's different places to land on this issue again i mentioned there's some people who just already think extraterrestrials are here there's, there's uh, whole thousands of accounts of abduction experiences. Um, in fact, Harvard, again, uh, John Mack, the Harvard psychiatrist, spent most of his career, he's, he's dead now, most of his career writing and studying abduction experiences. And in the end, he, <laughs> he essentially concluded that these were authentic. I mean, he gave it a sort of spiritualized, a spiritualized rendering, right, which might lead people to say he didn't believe it. The fact is people are having these kind of experiences. and 
so you can see why the debate is utterly ex expanded from people who are just listening, people who are actively pursuing messages, people who think we've encountered technology out there, but not here, and people thinking, no, they're already here. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's sort of a vast, vast sort of spectrum. And we should follow the evidence where, where it guides us. But we're learning that's much harder to do in this crisis of truth age that we're uh, witnessing, isn't it? Certainly. And you're already touching on some of the ethics of all of this, uh, of what, what it means to, uh, you know, try to be in contact and even try to wonder about these extraterrestrial beings, which I think is part of the reason why Whiteheadian, uh, what you would describe as cosmotheology, this Whiteheadian cosmotheology is really important because then it ultimately will shape the way that we engage in this question. And yeah. so, yeah, what, how do you think that this Whiteheadian cosmotheology should shape the way that we potentially treat these uh, other beings uh, or even try yeah. to get in contact with these other beings. But how do you think that Whiteheadian cosmotheology uh, would shape all of that? Yeah, that's a great question. And certainly it would shape it in a number of ways. The way I think is very important for us to consider is precisely this question of value, right? So for Whitehead, there are standards of value in the universe. Value is not something that we just cleverly invent when we finally emerged on the planet, right? Each step of evolution is an advance in value, in value experience. He says to even exist is, is, is to uphold a certain sense of value intensity. Now, God for Whitehead is that element that is always pursuing value and evolution. God provides a possibility to where actuality has closed so it can open up again into something more valuable. So, I think that translates at a high level into our moral sense, which develops how we treat others, how we treat plant, you know, animals on this planet, other populations, but also potentially how we would share ethical dimensions with, with other beings. And so I think Whitehead, this fundamental emphasis on value, and in, in particular aesthetic value, this concern for beauty that is part and parcel of his system, is a beautiful way to, to orient a, an extraterrestrial cosmos. And it's a, it's a way to spiritually orient it too, right? In some sense, we've always affirmed the tradition as God as the, as the beautiful, right? And there's something about spiritual orientation that is pursuing beauty, that is compelled and attracted by beauty. And I think that this element of Whitehead, that beauty is being pulled out of this long evolutionary process, uh, even, even higher than us to other, other planets. Here's the reason why I think that's significant too. One of the reasons, one of the big questions in the literature was posed by Enrico Fermi. And he was a physicist. He was at lunch one day with his friends. And after all, they were discussing all this. He throws up his hands and says, look, if the universe is infinitely populated in some sense with these beings, where are they? Just where are they? Why haven't we encountered them? Where are they? And that's been called the Fermi paradox, right? And there's various answers as to why, if the universe is populated with extraterrestrial life, we haven't encountered them. One of the most disturbing forms of answering that question is this. It's called the dark forest hypothesis. Essentially, if the universe is a dark forest, every planet, every creature is a hunter hiding behind trees as if though, uh, you know, hunting something for fear of being spotted and eliminated immediately. This is a picture of our cosmos. He says it's the answer uh, to the uh, dark forest hypothesis, uh, or, the, or the Fermi paradox, rather. So I think that, again, is a barbaric uh, extension of our own culture and our own faults onto the cosmos. Whereas it may be the case that in a Whiteheadian universe, any higher beings that we encounter are vastly more spiritually receptive than we are. Um, it may be that if they do contact us, it is not on behalf of uh, 
barbarism and evil, but on behalf of goodness and enlightenment, on behalf of uh, beauty in some sense. So I, I think we have to be careful about projecting our barbarism onto the cosmos. We have to be open to the, to the spiritual nature of extraterrestrial life. So my colleague Roland Faber has coined that, that extraterrestrial spiritual life is, is something that we should consider and, uh, and be open to. So, I mean, how do you, how does that sit with you? I know that's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that that possibility should be a possibility Yeah. on the flip side to sort of be a devil's advocate. Uh, uh yeah. you know, we, we have done horrors and evil in our own world. And again, part of that is by the, the possibility for, uh, the, the metaphysical principles for this possibility to happen for things like the Holocaust to happen. Yeah. And, and for, uh, because of our relationality brings up this complexity where we are opened up to the possibility to do really evil things. Yeah. I would imagine then that other extraterrestrial beings would also have that possibility of doing some really horrible, evil things or things that we would consider horrible and evil. And yeah. uh, I think at least that possibility should be also open, as well Absolutely. as the fact that we have done some really loving and beautiful things in our world with one another. And yeah. uh, I would imagine then that that possibility is open up. Good. Uh, as well. So I wonder if there's just this like deep complexity uh, for these other extraterrestrial beings of how they would relate to us. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't think it's more, yeah. it, it's right for us to project that they are, you know, all loving kind of beings or that they're all evil kind of beings, but there probably is uh, complexity there just as much as we're really complex. Definitely. I think, and to read it inversely like that is precisely right on Whitehead's scheme that these values develop together values and disvalues good and evil if you want to put it that way here's here's the catch though i think many are speculating that our species replete with good and evil and etc is going to destroy itself right whether through a nuclear holocaust whether through you know who knows right it could be that we as an intelligent species do come to a final end at our own hands and yet there could be vastly more intelligent species that have gotten through this civilizational bottleneck that we can't seem or well <laughs> that is open for us we don't know if we're going to get through it so my question is can a species that is how do you how do we express it if they have advanced past their own destruction they found a way to not utterly destroy themselves they found a way to live in harmony they found a way to transcend elements of our animal nature which are always there then I think they would be uh, more spiritually advanced. Um, it's not to say there's not uh, some bad crops among them. There always, always certainly is. But I got to think that if we encounter a species that is vastly more intelligent than us, then they've, ha they've found a way to overcome these defects of human nature. And that way, I would argue, is a spiritual way, right? Yeah. So I want to admit that you're, what you're bringing up is important. But I do think we can we can imaginably think about a spiritual species that has implemented means of transcending their barbaric nature. Mm. And that's what we hope to do, too, as we spiritually ascend as a civilization, isn't it? I mean, don't we want to overcome our our oppressive tendencies, the racism, the sexism, the any number of isms that are out there? Yeah, we do. And I think the means to do that is is not by um, coercion. Uh, but for but through persuasive spiritual um, antennas, as it were, mm -hmm. and at least for the process universe, those antennas are being fed by a persuasive love that transcends just our planet, but is calling us towards higher truth, beauty, and goodness. Mm -hmm.
now I just feel like I'm preaching. I love I love a good sermon in uh, in the <laughs> middle of the day on a Thursday. But Andrew, how do you hope that this book inspires and liberates its readers? Awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, I, again, it's an academic book. It's written primarily for a more academic audience. I'm working on a few other texts in this uh, in this field too, but I hope it liberates the imaginations of people. For those who agree with somebody like Stephen Dick, um, that really the this this affirmation of cosmotheology doesn't really require God, and that's really what he thinks. Um, I think that's wrong. I think there's a way of affirming the reality of God as cosmic, as related, as um, as plenitudinous. That is seeking. Uh, beauty and goodness on any and every planet there is. I think it, I hope it awakens imagination at an academic level. I hope it um, shows the current conversation that whitehead and process thinkers have said a lot and have a lot to add to this discussion. Mm-hmm. And on a more uh, practical level, I hope it gives people more resources to think about how it is that God might relate to some of these key metaphysical questions we've just been discussing, including the the existence of other other intelligent beings. So that that, that would be my hope. Love that. Uh, last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Yeah, thank you. Um, if you go to andrewmdavis.info, that's my website. You can subscribe there. Uh, please do to, to follow my work. I send out um, updates on what's happening, whether books or conferences. You mentioned at the beginning that I do program directing at the Center for Process Studies. We have a lot of excellent conferences on the way. Um, both you know tail end of this year, but also next year as well. So if you or your listeners are interested in that, we'd love to include you and get you involved. Um, I'm also on social media, Adventure Davis at uh, Adventure underscore Davis on Instagram and also uh, on Facebook there. So I'd love to hear how this material, difficult as it is, is sitting with people. I'd love to, th- to hear what you think about the book if you do endeavor it. And uh, as I like to say, let's just keep the conversation going because that's uh, lovely. As far as I'm concerned, what this is all about. And for my extraterrestrial uh, listeners, are they invited to the process uh, events and uh, in- invited to email you as well? Well, let me let me read to you the dedication of the book for philosophers and theologians on planet Earth and elsewhere. <laughs> well, that's a yes. That's an affirmation. Love that. Well, Andrew, uh, it's just a pleasure to hang out and chat. Uh, what an unbelievable book, uh, something that I don't think I've really ever explored on this podcast yet, but I think it's just cool. as important uh, as a lot of the other kind of uh, theological topics that I explore. So thank you so much for writing it. Uh, and uh, what a wonderful book. Thank you, Mason. Great talking with you. You can get connected with Andrew and his work in the links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.